This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Bring Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Bring, Jamie Bogan. This is episode 224 of the podcast, and we are sitting out on a back patio, enjoying the snow falling around us in Lyons, Colorado, at Mainstage Brewing. Thank you to the folks at Mainstage for letting us uh, camp out here on their porch. We are in the hometown of Julia Hertz, executive director of the AHA, recently named executive director of the American Homebrewers Association and former craft beer program director for the Brewers Association. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thank you, Jamie. So good to be here and out of the gates. And it's a common um, uh, variant of my last name. It's hers opposite of his with no T in the name. I am not an uh, heir to the rental car fortune. I, I threw am, a Z, I threw a T in it, that. It's so common. I, okay. I only bring it up just for the masses and the wonderful people that listen, so they also get aligned with hers. Opposite of his is how it's pronounced. Uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that you set me straight on that uh, because I've been mentally mispronouncing it in my head well, for you years and, and, and years and years. Pretty much anyone I meet, so no worries there. You know, I noticed that that, that pronunciation thing is so common. I was thinking about it last week when we had a uh, uh, fermentous uh, brand on there. I need to uh, understand how to, to pronounce things. And in fact, uh, in the sponsor sh- uh, read that I'm going to do in a minute, I had to look up the pronunciation of it and listen to it to make sure that I got it correct because you know, people are hearing this and it's the same thing. I mean, we hear brewers with words like quike, you know, if, and I say kvike, so you, you correct me. Thank you for educating me out of the gates. I've already learned something. And there it is. We had, you know, Lars Marius Garshal on and could hear a native Norwegian speaker speak it like, okay, that's, that's what the word is. And so you're right. We create pronunciations out of the things we read all the time. Nonetheless, Exciting to have Julia here on the podcast. Appreciate that. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. And I think we're going to talk about this in, a, in this kind of breath. We would normally just talk about how brewers brew beer. We're going to talk a little bit about that because you're an avid home brewer, obviously, and have been involved in beer, been a diehard activist and supporter and evangelist for craft beer. Um tireless, a tireless advocate for the story of craft beer over many, many years. Incredibly excited to talk about that. But you've also developed some fantastic resources that everyone, even in that that role uh, for craft beer program manager, developed, I think, one of the most pivotal resources on, on the food program, pairing beer and food. It's something that everybody out there in the world of beer should be paying attention to and using um, whether they're selling beer or whether they're simply making their own beer at home and trying to pair that and serve that to their friends and make an experience that means something to them. We're going to talk about using flavor, understanding flavor, identifying flavor, getting comfortable with flavor, using flavor terminology, being able to you know connect to these kind of disparate things in your, in your head around flavors. In addition to talking about the current role that home brewing is playing you know, in this broader world, where we are today, the interaction between home brewing and pro brewing, because home brewers, I mean, as we all know, have been the farm leagues and bench, uh, you know, for the world ranks of pro brewing out there. Um, but at the same time, sharing information in both directions, homebrewers influencing professional brewing, professional brewers influencing homebrewers. Um, and we love how messy and unclear, but interesting, fascinating that it is. We're going to talk about all of that. But before we do that, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, g Chiller's new micro-channel condensers, g micro-channel condensers, are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. g Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, get back to the future with Weirman Iceria 1924, made from the oldest German malting barley variety. Iceria shows malty, sweet flavor and a soft biscuit-like aroma. This heirloom malt makes amazing traditional Bavarian-style lagers, not to mention modern craft lagers and malt-forward ales. For more info, samples, and orders, please visit go.bsgcraft.com slash contact dash us. Julia, um, 
give us the background. Give us your background, your personal story through beer, what that arc looks like, uh, how you got involved being that advocate for craft beer. It's such a vocal one. It's such a visible one um, for so long. Um, talk to me about where it started and, uh, you know, what arc you followed. I, I love the opportunity to talk about this, Jamie. Thank you. And hello to everyone listening. I could go on that answer, Riff, as long or as short as you want. I'll try to give you the condensed We've version. We've got a few minutes, a few minutes. We, we can rabbit hole, um, you know, in anything you want me to dive into. But I think the big picture on that question is, is how I got into beer. Had to do with influence from my family and my parents and my brother. And when I was before 10 years old, my brother had a beer can collection. Bruriana is the term. And he still to this day has that collection. It's not displayed. I'd love to get it displayed somewhere. Um, and honor what he dumpster dived to get or got my parents to go to the Brick Skeller when we were growing up in Washington, D.C. Um, and get cans that uh, they either drank or still have the beers in them. And I was exposed to that thinking Different beers, different packages, different labels, different producers, different areas of the globe these came from, different colors, different smells before I was 10. And so I think that set the stage. And in the back of my mind, I Brick always Brickskeller, that's a deep cut. Rest yeah. in peace. I, I actually got to the Brickskeller while it was still open, I think probably late 90s. And uh, what a place that was. Yeah. And it, then it became the Beer Baron after that. I, I'm not up on what it is today. And maybe it's still the Beer Baron. But it had more than 500 different beers on the sure. menu with no draft. Yeah. Only bottles and cans. And so that had me thinking, when I come of age, I want to brew beer. I mean, that's the simple, simple answer to a, a pretty long and um, unique journey. Sure, sure. And so you you caught the bug uh, before you were able to legally drink. What was that first experience drinking craft beer or drinking beer in general? Well, my biggest first experience beyond like nipping off my dad's moose head in the fridge downstairs, you know, and he knew enough to have... Um, uh, imported beers. Uh, he was trying to dabble in beers with flavor. And I really think I benefited from that. Um, but when I came of age, I was able to homebrew. So me and my friend, Charlie Gunn, we ordered a kit. I, it was a Scottish ale. I always say we put too much corn sugar in it, but it still <laughs> rocked. And I remember serving that to our friends. I'm pretty sure we bottled it in swing top Grolsch bottles. And it was the best thing I had ever done. The, the unique nature of handing our friends that beer, getting feedback, having it actually taste halfway good, um, immediately changed things for me. And from there, there was no turning back. And I was always the home brewer that kept home brewing. Over the years when my friends kind of stopped or it puttered out, they'd give me their equipment. Um, and I, you know, through my years, uh, have, have gone through stages of more active, less active, but I've sure. always kept up with the hobby. So you went to college, but the idea was not to become a brewer. Nope. Not yet. Not yet. So college university of South Florida in Tampa, broadcast journalism major had ideas of grandeur being a news anchor. <laughs> um, certainly, uh, interned at the local ABC affiliate at the investigative unit. Um, remember weird stories like, you know, sitting on Santa Claus's laps during Christmas to see if then we would, you know, I was the one that would ask him for his information and we'd run his record to see if he was a pedophile and like some really aggressive out there stuff from the investigative unit. And I love the concept of, um, TV news. I also was a, uh, um, AM broadcaster. I did reading for the blind. I did lots of stuff in broadcasting to learn. And then out of college, I was lucky enough to get an internship at CNN Washington, D.C. Bureau. And I had grown up in the Washington, D.C., Maryland area. So that was a great next step. Made it three years. Pretty much got exposed to the biggest picture thinking you can see, but also exposed to the kind of cog and wheel corporate news type of thinking and approach in CNN's early days. It was during the Gulf War. I was literally there when Bernard Shaw was getting handed copy during, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Gulf War happening and unfolding on TV. And then ended up working at Larry King Live, worked for Crossfire, did weekend work um, to try to become a, a field reporter with the um, assignment desk. But it puttered out in terms of my interest and ability to think that I was going to succeed there. I don't think I had what it took. Uh, there was many things that felt right and many things I just was never going to rise to the occasion to. So I quit, told my parents. They were upset. My brother wrote me a letter. You're throwing your you know, degree out the window. Sure, sure. I get it. But I, I, and I also couldn't articulate it. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing or where I'm going, but it's not this. That's all I could you know, summarize. So a year on the road, Jamie, and that's what took me to beer. Year on the road, $15 a day. Me and my friend Christy traveled in my Volkswagen Jetta, called it the Gypsy Jetta. And we did BLM. We did national parks. We did national forests. We got in amazing shape. 
And when we didn't know anyone in any of the states we were in, we would go to the brew pubs. Sure. And that's where we met sweet, wonderful people that were kind to us, told us where to camp, told us where to crash on their couch, how we could sleep in their backyard in our tent. And then the next thing you know on that trip, I volunteered at the Great American Beer Festival. And that is put on by the Brewers Association, who I, I proudly have worked for now 16 and a half years with a bit of a unique journey to some of my coworkers. Um, and, uh, you know, that that volunteering from an earnest part of my own volition to both homebrew on my own and then also on my own say, I'm going to volunteer at this amazing festival. That's what got me into the BA. And then a twist on the story is, is after that trip, Christy and I said our, you know, goodbyes. I went back, started working at CNN again. I'm jogging in a field one night and I'm like, did I really just like leave on a year long trip and grow like that to pick up where I left off and come back? And I kind of broke down and I had a, I had a heart to heart with myself Said, I'm going to have to say the same conversation with my parents again, even though I was back in at CNN freelancing. And I said, look, I've learned so much in this year. I want to go to the West. And I was headed to Taos. I ended up in Colorado outside of Netherland and camping. And I was going to go to Telluride Bluegrass Fest. Next thing you know, I'm renting a room um, in Netherland in Eldora, the little mountain town. And that, through many other little pieces of the story, um, led me to beer. And one significant event is I had been at a beer festival in Beaver Creek, Colorado, and Charlie Papazian, who is the founder of the Great American Beer Festival um, and the Brewers Association, frankly, uh, picked my name out of a hat, a top hat, one of those top hats. And it had names from everybody at the fest, a couple hundred people, and I won a membership to the American Homebrewers Association in the 90s after I had moved to Colorado. And so that sets the stage for me to be aware of what was going on with the association. I eventually got a job there as sales manager, then left, had two kids, worked at Redstone Meadery as vice president. So I was peddling draft mead on, you know, to accounts, which really was big chops to learn how sure, crackers sure. have a hard time. And then, you know, Ray Daniels leaves the Brewers Association to uh, start the Cicerone program. Uh, amazing institution. Ray Daniels. Absolutely. Lots to say there. And so I took his role as craft beer program director. Fast forward to 2020, COVID hits um, in all the work to be a voice for craft brewers. And that was my job to advance demand for craft beer. Got to have major impact. Um, the Brewers Association laid off a, a third of its workforce. I was one of them, including my team. And um, now here I am back in the third tour of duty as executive director of the American Home Brewers Association. It's like the universe wants you here. I wanted to be here. Yeah, I yeah. went through major loss, major grief, sure, sure. major growth, though, too. And I think it's great for anyone to take a step out of their life. If you're in any job for, for a long time, any relationship for a long time, we have to make sure we see things from a broad perspective. And so I come at this new role having gained that um, despite the loss and, and, and the absence. There was, there was a lot of outcry. You know, when that happened and there were a lot of folks throughout the beer industry that were frustrated by it, um, you know, but I think it's the same dynamic that everyone felt in the economy at the same kind of time. And it's something that brewers are still facing right now, you know, especially as we just go through this past month where breweries are dealing with COVID spikes and, you know, employee, too many employees sick that they can't operate their own, you know, businesses, uh, dealing with all of these challenges, you know, even through COVID there, you know, some breweries have sold more beer, but other breweries that are, especially those that are draft focused have not been able to make that kind of pivot and suffered immeasurably through this and have had to lay off staff. It's just a common experience. I think it's one that can kind of get glossed over in the narrative was that we look at just how well the stock market is done and what the unemployment numbers look like. You can kind of forget that there really are brewing businesses and other things, especially the Brewers Association, which has so much tied to live events. And all of those live events were so immeasurably impacted over the last couple of years. That has had a major budgetary impact on that um, and just caused unfortunate things to happen that nobody wanted to happen. But, you know, in order to be fiscally responsible to the membership, they, you know, um, nonetheless, Nonetheless, here we are. New next chapter, right? A different chapter. Past is the past. Can't have what you don't, you know, what's what's in the rearview mirror. We can only learn from that and, and grow from it and, and build what's next. And the important thing is here you are raring to go and ready to tackle this next chapter with uh, a new kind of zeal and also with that additional perspective behind you. 
Yep. Well, we're going to talk about that. But first, looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough? Think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation is the first real-time comprehensive fermentation monitoring solution. It works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real-time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Brew Monitor provides detailed insight into your fermentations that helps improve beer consistency, reduce tank time, and increase overall efficiency, saving your brewery time and money. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash brewing. So let's talk about homebrewing for a minute. Now that, I mean, and I should say you are new to the role, two months at, in the role of executive director of the American Homebrewing Association. Um, the AHA, even though there's American in the title, is a very international organization that represents homebrewers, uh, has member homebrew clubs around the world. Um, it is certainly the largest of any organization of its size, the competitions that the, uh, the competition, the national homebrew competition that the American homebrewers association holds, um, is an absolute, uh, star maker in the world of brewing. I looked, I was thinking about that earlier today as I was prepping for this and, and, uh, you know, even contributors like Annie Johnson, who's a uh, regular contributor to craft beer and brewing magazine came out of winning, you know, an NHC, uh, the, these are pivotal things and these are think meaningful things that the AHA has created over many decades of operation and organization. And they're things that have impacted so many brewers in the way that so many brewers have connected, brewed, found each other and helped build the things that they've built. Um, looking at that, you know, understanding that that past is prologue, you know, what is, what is the, what does it look like right now? I think I love your setup for this because it's there's so much uh, to appreciate on what homebrewing, frankly, and the American Homebrewers Association behind the scenes have brought forth to the entire beverage of beer globally. Because without Jimmy Carter in 1978 legalizing homebrewing, without Charlie Papazian and, and, and Nancy, um, who was behind the scenes starting, you know, the lobbying effort to get that passed. In 1979, Zymergy magazine gets published and the American Homebrewers Association starts. You wouldn't have had, I think, the incubator space and the, um, the proper resources to empower people. And in our prep for this, you're talking about the allied trade and the industry partners who brought online ingredients, more accessibility for um, equipment for us as homebrewers as things elapsed. Without all that, you wouldn't have the stage for this $20 billion plus industry, at least in the U.S., of craft brewing. And then, you know, now you've got global brewers calling themselves craft brewers. So it's amazing what homebrewing has done. Homebrewing has directly contributed to many of the styles today on the books. Homebrewing is an economic base of epic proportions. One statistic that we are able to share um, pre my tenure, but in 2017, it was calculated that homebrewers basically brew um, about 1.4% uh, of a domestically made beer if you mm. if you compared it, right. um, which is incredible. So I think um, the future looks bright. I can't wait to get out there and brew with people in their kitchens, get them brewing with me in my kitchens, brew in fields, brew it, you know, on top of cars and, and under rock hangings and, you know, on top of mountains and use the local water and, and pull bark off of trees. And like, let's just get a little crazy here and, and, and take home brewing to the next level. It is a funny thing that, uh, you know, what we look at, especially in the terms of farmhouse brewing, is, and this is a subject that we've been engaging on within Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, that, uh, you know, the idea of farmhouse brewing is essentially home brewing. That uh, you know, if you look at some of these, a lot of these, most of the vast majority of these farmhouse brewing traditions are home brewing traditions. We now have a commercial beer industry, and that commercial beer industry started in the 1800s, and it is now a you know a, a commercially operating uh, thing. But at the same time, so many beer traditions only exist 
in home brewing that, uh, and we've been trying to dive in that in an editorial way to kind of explore these because they're so interesting. Um, and even things like Norwegian farmhouse sales, which yielded the quike yeast that we were talking about our home brewing traditions. Uh, you know, and so that, that piece of it is such an important thing. Obviously all of us want to celebrate and look at that as such a, you know, an integral piece of the fabric that, uh, the beer is not just commercially brewed beer. It's very important that that entire piece of it is considered as this, uh, this piece of importance, but nonetheless, you know, there's also some interesting, uh, dynamics in the world of homebrewing right now. I mean, we've seen it certainly on our side. A lot of our readers and listeners are, are homebrewers. There are also a fair amount of, you know, professional brewers that are listeners and, and readers. Um, but that homebrewing side went, you know, has, has fit a certain wave and certainly saw a giant rise through the early, early 20 teens, you know, up into the mid 20 teens. Uh, we saw a fantastic growth in the kind of equipment, the kind of ingredients, quality, uh, you know, all of these pieces were avail- became available to homebrewers in a way that they were just not available before. And it's been fun to watch that. But at the same time, we've also seen this arc where breweries, commercial breweries, small commercial breweries, you know, small taproom focused, I'm going to make beer and serve it, uh, you know, just to the people that walk into my taproom type of breweries, which are you know, in some senses, you know, nanoscale breweries yeah, scaled up just a little yep, bit, yep. you know, that has taken off and we've now had 9,000 breweries in the United States. Um, so it's a different commercial brewing world. Also one that, you know, where the world itself and at least thousands of those breweries are somewhere in between. They're not the large scale brew a hundred thousand barrels or brew even 20,000. Yeah. Barrels I mean, and, the majority you know, of breweries today of those 9,000 make less than a thousand barrels of beer a year. I bet most of them make less than 300 barrels a year. Yeah, less than 500 for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, and so there's a lot of shared technique and there's a lot of shared equipment even, you know, that can work between the world of home brewing and that world of pro brewing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the innovation potential and the and the potential to grow and learn is right there. And I think that's what's exciting of the community. I mean, uh, you know, a million plus home brewers are logged to be active Uh, Craft Beer and Brewing has their numbers. American Homebrewers Association membership is 37,000 strong, and I'd love to see it grow to 50,000, 100,000. I'd love to see 10 million plus homebrewers in the U.S., right? Just like cheese making, just like sourdough bread making. There's that home in the kitchen DIY gene in all of us. And if we're fortunate enough to live beyond hand to mouth, where we're not just drinking liquid for substance to stave off thirst, and we're not just eating food for calories, we can live in that gastronomic space and feed our heart and soul in a way that brings art to the kitchen in the beer form, in the beverage form. And, you know, I call it immaculate fermentation. And it really is a fascinating thing where we're vehicles for yeast and we take it to a place where we can ferment things. How friggin' cool is that? So, Julia, the big question, and I hear this sometimes, you know, posed out there, and uh, it's often cast in in these negative kinds of terms. With so much good commercial beer available out there, why brew your own? Fair question. You're busy. You're trying to get your job done. Pay the bills. Take care of the kids. You're, you know, nurture yourself. Nurture your significant others. Nurture friendships. I get it. It's the same thing of asking, you know, about exercise. You have to prioritize it. It's the same thing, again, if you're beyond hand-to-mouth of why order out all the time if you have the means, and and frankly, most don't, but if you do, you still are cooking at home. It's that process of brewing in the reward of every aspect and the stage of the home brewing. It's not just brew day. It's the day in advance to prep the ingredients and go to talk to the local homebrew shop and talk to them and, and procure what you're going to do. It is brewing it, and then it's the a week or two later transferring it to secondary. It's putting your favorite T-shirt on your carboy that's bubbling away in your room because that's the warmest place in the house, and you lovingly look at it every morning when you wake up, and you actively are a part of knowing that it's, you know, basically hearing your vibrations of the music you play and the voice, um, you know, from your from from what you speak. And that's influencing that beverage. And then when you transfer it and package it and bottle it, there's a whole nother part to the journey. We're giving that to people. We're sharing that as gifts. So homebrewing doesn't teach us about ingredients and recipe development, flavor profile, flavor balance, and sensory reward. It brings us community. And it teaches us a little more about ourselves and each other because of that. I like that. I I like to think of it in terms of, you know, and this is part of my own personal value I like doing things because they're hard, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. 
And I love, and I think that that is that kind of, you know, Quintus, not that homebrewing is hard. It can be easy. Um, but I love challenge. And I think that most of us as human beings embrace that challenge in some sort of way. Um, you know, you know, looking at that JFK, you know, kind of quote, why do we go to the moon? Not because it's easy, because it's hard. Yeah, because but- we like to challenge ourselves, we like to set something out. I think that, you know, we have as human beings this desire to pursue mastery. Mm-hmm. And we find challenges for ourselves, whether that is climbing a mountain or running a faster mile, you know, or being more creative or finding some sort of expression. But I think you're right, homebrewing provides that kind of technical challenge. It provides that, you know, means of jumping into the flow, but it also provides that social feedback and it can, you know, and when other people taste it and have a positive reaction to it, then then the dopamine reactors just go off and there it is, you know, it's, it's, you know, big. And that kind of closes that gap. When I clean a difficult line on a mountain bike trail, like I feel great about myself, but nobody else sees that. I mean, they don't, cause I don't take GoPro of it and show it off to everybody, which I could, I could, but I don't, you know, whereas you brew a great beer and, uh, you know, your friends get to taste it and they get to try it and they get to respond to that. And you can take it deeper and to reinforce what you've just said, it allows us to be explorers and pioneers within our own small little world. And, you know, those hours that you might've spent cause your mind needed a rest, but not your body. You sit on the couch and you're watching TV to debrief each weeknight that one weeknight where I had to transfer beer instead of catching another Netflix movie, I'm getting a lot more out of that night than that Netflix movie, right? And then, you know, the friendship part of it and giving away your beer, homebrewers are using beers for many meaningful things. We recently had Front Range Fires, um, the Marshall Fires. The first thing I did, and it was in my early weeks of my first month, and again, I'm in my second month, so little uh, little uh, um, considerations on that and anything I share but I didn't, I felt helpless. And the only thing I knew how to do was put out to the local homebrew clubs. Let's go ahead and find homebrewers who have lost their homes, thousand plus, and let's get them equipment. And so I plan to follow through on that. And I think there's an opportunity for a program for the American Homebrewers Association to help homebrewers that need help. And it's not just how to brew and the resources of the amazing national organizations or publications like what you represent and I represent. It's how homebrewing helps us be better or help each other. And um, an example uh, that I love to share from the Front Range Floods in 2013, we're sitting in Lyons, Colorado, by the way, to reset the scene if you're just tuning in, snowy night around us and main stage brewing. We're at the, you know, the, the mouth of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and we're sitting at the, the literally the um, convergence of two bodies of water coming down both of um, the canyons above us. Well, in 2013, we had the thousand-year flood basically here in Lyons. I was displaced for two months, FEMA recipient, trapped in my house for three days, um, lots of drama and trauma. And we had friends up the canyon that lost their homes. We only had tens of thousands of dollars of damage. They lost their homes. First thing I knew how to do to homebrewers is six months later when the dust settled, I said to them, you matter to me. I'm not going away. I know how I can help you. Let's brew a beer for you. You pick the ingredients. You're going to brew it with me. I'm going to buy all, you know, buy everything. And then once we brewed it together, they got the beer. I gave them some of my personal homebrew equipment because I hadn't lost anything. And then when they rebuilt their house, they were able to tap that party, bring people over to the house on that very special day and share the homebrew that they had brewed in anticipation of that rebuild and coming home. And that to me is also homebrewing making it meaningful and having beer be that connective tissue, you know, both in the experience um, of making it and the experience of consuming it. I think that's the the kind of twofold impact of this, that uh, there's that social component when you make it together, especially since most, a lot of homebrewing happens among friends, brewing together, um, being able to share that experience, but then also the experience several weeks later of being able to enjoy it together. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. I could talk about how much and how cool and important this is uh, all day long, and it, but it's exciting. We could geek out too. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, I would love to, again, talk to you about flavor. And I want to, you know, now that you're, since you mentioned the Marshall fires, you should also mention that the Brewers Association chef, Adam Dooley, lost the home, his rental home in that fire 
I've contributed to is GoFundMe. I hope other people find that GoFundMe for Adam Dooley also and can contribute. I mean, what a difficult situation to be a renter um, and not have the benefit, I mean, not have homeowners that kind of like land to go back. That's what a terrible challenge these got to be facing right now. So encourage everybody to go out there and support all the folks. Um, But in particular, this one close to home with, uh, with all of us here in Colorado and the Brewers Association. That's a good segue to talk about flavor and food. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, have you heard of PBW tablets? Yes, that's right. The PBW powder you've known and trusted is now available in tablet form from Five Star Chemicals in two sizes, one per 32 ounce and one per gallon of water to optimize your cleaning. Simply add one per gallon for all stainless equipment, growlers, kettles, or carboys. Purchase on their website or your favorite homebrew supplier. Um, so maybe this is just my pet issue with beer and food because I find it such Let's an issue. Let's hear it. Thing. What is it? You know, it, it's not an issue. It, it's a focus. And it's one that I think that uh, we maybe don't spend as much time on. It's an issue that's close to your heart. I think from a broader position of marketing beer as a beverage, particularly in the United States, making that connection to food is something that wine and you know spirits did a long time ago. It's one that uh, has been a harder sell for beer, but when you think, when I think about you know an initiative that the BA undertook um, for many years to try to make that connection feel stronger to America's restaurateurs and to people who serve food and beer to get you know to connect those things together, it's such an important thing. You know, we talk about it in the industry now as finding occasions for drinking, and meals are such an important occasion. You know, for for that to happen with their social these kind of connective things, you know, and so and yet beer never especially with American restaurants. I blame the large brewers and all those (laughs) crazy TV ads marketed to legal drinking males in their 21 to 34 era of, hey, beer's going to get you laid. Like beer, it's got a stigma, you know, go into the basement of any Buriana collector and like it's objectifying women and it's basically talking to, to young males. That's not talking to me about a sensory reward that goes with my meal. I mean, sure, over the years, in the 50s and onward, there was advertising that tried to tie it, but it was often women in service of serving their men, you know, the 1950s era onward, you've seen the ads, and it just didn't do the beverage justice, and I'm, I'm a marketing, you know, cause marketer, I'm a branding expert, you have a lot of decades to go before beer is going to erase that stigma, Small and independent craft brewers came on the scene and started to do that. They brought beer tableside. Brew pubs started to do that. We're right, sitting in right. one right here at Main Stage. And it was the beginning of great things, I think, when you started to have that, you know, brew pub, gastro pub movement. And now I do think beer pairing, um, and I totally feel like you cut you cut you off because you no, were no. making a good point. It has a total opportunity, but being the co-author, for example, of the beer pairing book um, with Glenn Conley, and you mentioned craftbeer.com beer and food guide, which I co-authored with Chef Adam Dooley of the, of the Brewers Association, I did those a few years ago. I keep waiting for beer to have its pairing moment, and it's still just like fighting the stigma. And like, look, everything's a spectrum. We as personalities and people are spe- on a spectrum. But beer has really boxed itself into a corner. And I think what's fascinating right now, and I love the exploration, what is beer, what is not, big argument. We could spend the whole show on that. But, you know, getting back and and, and Left Hand Brewing Company talks about it, beer-flavored beer. What is, you know, beer-flavored beer? That's what I want to brew. That's what I want to drink. That's what I want to taste. That's what I want to share with other people. And that's what I want with my meal. And that's what I want to geek out and play with, just as wine does tableside in how many restaurants and in how many homes, you know, across the world. For sure. For sure. You know, I will caveat all of that by saying I love brewers. And we explore on this very podcast all of these avenues that brewers, you know, 
move down to create flavor and create unique experiences. Oh, Big Brewers brought so much to the table in that arena. I mean, and everything's a spectrum. My right. words should never be black and white. Sure. But I, de- I definitely blame Big Brewers and those advertising agencies <laughs> and the marketing campaigns that put beer in this like stigma corner. I, I think it's fair. You know, and I think that, uh, you know, again, coming at it from a perspective and, and I'll tap into our experience, um, you know, short Louis for a year owned a craft beer bar and pub um, and got to watch that kind of intersection of the way that beer is marketed and, and also the way that you know, beer is sold to consumers and the way that, you know, beer works with food in that kind of environment. Um, it's not the savviest approach. Um, finding out, you know, figuring out from a marketing perspective, you know, being able to teach and educate and bring people along so that they understand how these flavors of food and beer work together. It's not something that's just reflexive for a lot of people that are trying to help accounts who might do this kind of thing along. Um, Put on your marketer hat for a second for me and think about um, how a small brewery out there that's trying to develop more accounts, especially food focused accounts, um, sell beer in situations, number one, should think about the beer lineup that they're making. Um, think about the flavors in those beers. And then also think about how to connect those beers with food flavors in a way that might make sense to somebody, an external restaurateur or someone who is selling that food and looking for some way to complement that. Great. And it's not too easy to unpack in like a three-sentence soundbite answer. Um, you have me thinking about frites and mussels from Belgium and Belgian wit beer, right? That's a classic um, historical written about, pontificated on pairing. And there's many reasons for those synergies. And when it comes to pairing, if you are going to do what you have just described, meaning own the arena of one beverage that you can then eloquently link to one pleasing food dish to make one plus one equal five, which is a home run in pairing, compared to middle of the road, which is beer doesn't make food better, food doesn't make the beer better, but they're, you know, they're they're not um, singing together, then, you know, you got to get some tools under your belt, right? And so you have to understand the concept of flavor. I'd love a moment to talk about that. And you then have to understand the concept of interactions and how the beer interacts with the food. And so here's my philosophy on on flavor. And when I say this, I put it in commercial terms, but this works just as well for somebody who's thinking about beer to brew at home and serve with their meals or serve in meals to friends. And so I think it's broadly applicable in that way. Totally. And anyone, anytime I get a chance for a seminar, if I'm talking sensory and beer and food pairing, I will say no matter where you're using this, you will be transformed if you, if you buy in. And so the concept of food flavor to me is a triangle. Flavor is a fusion. Certainly from my Cicerone training, that has um, influenced me. And that flavor triangle is three things. At the top of the triangle, you know, basic taste, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, emerging as oleogustus or fat. You have metallic and other things coming along and being documented as basic taste, literally perceived by your tongue and soft palate. That's just one corner of the three, you know, cornered triangle. Second corner is aromatic compounds, tens of thousands of volatile compounds, but anything that's aromatic, right? Aroma, that we do the act of smelling to perceive aroma. That's the second piece of flavor. The third, my favorite, and I was recently asked, you know, what's your what's your um, rock band name or the bar name? And I was like, oh my gosh, well, I love flavor and I talk about it all the time. And I'd call it dichotomy of textures. And so mouthfeel is the third piece of that triangle, the third corner of that triangle, because mouthfeel to me really brings things home. Temperatures, textures, and pain, you know, chemesthetic, trigeminal nerve type of stuff. And so when you're talking about horseradish or menthol or capsaicin heat, that's what I'm talking about when it comes to, you know, that mouthfeel component. And so you've got body um, and in beer, and you've got a lot of aspect of mouthfeel in beer with um, tannins, polyphenols. Uh, you know, tannins come from that grippiness, right? Like steeping a tea bag too long. Um, if you ever try to open, a, unpeel a, a banana, just bite the tip and peel it, and all of a sudden the astringency will dry up the saliva in your mouth. That is tannins. Well, that comes from malt, the husks of grain, right? It also comes from hops. Hops have that. And so beer brings that to the table. I have just described very complex but simple triangle, three things, mouthfeel, 
aromatic compounds, basic taste. If you can identify what's going on in a beer with those three things, then you look at your food. You identify what those basic tastes, aromatic compounds, and mouthfeel are in the food. Then you look for bridges, links, hooks, echoes, where they connect. Or you talk about it in terms of complement or contrast each other. Then you riff on interactions and how they interact with each other. And then how they take each other either to the mentioned home run, one plus one equals five, the middle of the road but still good, or the train wreck. I didn't like it. I had a negative clash. And then the last piece of it is learning how to describe what you experience. So when you have an interaction, how did the beer work with the food? How did the food work with the beer? It's really hard, but you can play with it and practice it. And the more you practice it, the more you get better. You just blazed through a whole bunch of complex material right there. Let's step that back right there because you talked about hooks and echoes and a few other things that I just that whizzed by me. Um, explain what you're talking about when you say that. Um, and it's certainly a wine world concept. And, and wine still to this day. I mean, Culinary Institute of America... Uh, has a book on wine. They don't have a book on beer yet. <laughs> but hey, they have a brewery there, right? You know, uh, um, Hutch, who's the brewer, I know him, right? In Hyde Park, I've been to his brewery. Right. They have a brewery, right? So beer is coming along. Um, but bridges, um, links, echoes. It, and, and Garrett Oliver talks a lot about this um, in his amazing work. It has to do with one taste element, one flavor element bridging or linking or connecting or echoing and playing off each other. Um, pretend you have a Saison with yeast esters and I'll get essence of like white fruit flavors of peach and apricot from that Saison yeast, right? Then I'm pairing it with a cheesecake, you know, with, um, with candied peaches on top. Well, the yeast esters in that Saison might pair and echo very nicely to the candy peach on top of that cheesecake. That's what I mean by echo or bridge. And then once that happens, you have the ability, and I call it the mind-to-palate connection. Your palate just perceives. It's very factual. The mind is like the kid at the high school dance in the corner gossiping about everybody in front of them dancing. And you have to have your mind if you really want to be a salesperson. And what triggered this entire dialogue is you asking if I should or how we empower somebody making a sales pitch to an account about that one beer, about how it's going to work. Well, you have to figure out your dialogue. And do you want your dialogue to be biased? Do you want to act like you're a little kid that still hates broccoli? Do you want to be biased in the world against others that don't look like you? No, we need to all shed our bias. When we shed our bias, our mind allows us to really understand and appreciate what the palate is tasting. And so then you can get better at describing to others how you are perceiving it, and then you get a chance to connect with it, especially if you can say to each other those three categories. To me, it's a home run. Here's why. If the person you're talking to gets that it's a home run, one plus one equals five, they can then have a place to understand, to look for that link or that bridge or that echo between peach, you know, apricot esters to, to peach on top of cheesecake. So there's, you know, a lot to talk about and learn. It's one step at a time, though, and, and, and the more you do it, the less it's like a sieve in your head where you drain pasta and things just fall through, you know, the, the, the colander. If you have lexicon in your back pocket, then you're able to describe and then you can connect with each other in a way that they can identify with and understand. Sure. I think, you know, when we look at what human knowledge is, human knowledge is relationships. It's relationships between things. You know, we don't have a way of defining things independent of the idea of this is like that, or this is not like that. You know, these are, that's the core of the human knowledge that we have. And so, you know, when, when, with things like flavor, the nostalgic ideas of these things and what they remind us of and um, you know, they connect to other things. We're constantly describing that this is like this, this is, or is like that. To um, you, though, because perception right. is personal. So to then is, is pairing. So like to you means based on your personal experience. Right, right. Um, you know, but it is so relational in that way because, you know, because we don't have internal language for describing things independently of the other things that they are like. Big time. You it's know. like trying to describe a dream. And I, I talk about this a lot. Well, like, oh my gosh, you were in a cognitive, you know, lucid dream. You're able to remember it right when you woke up. But those few seconds and minutes after you wake up are crucial. You turn over to write it in your journal. You turn over to tell your significant other about your dream. As soon as you try to put it to words, 
it starts to get lost unless you are really practiced in describing. And that's when it gets a little easier. So taking your personal perception and experience and, and talking about it. So many brewers are, are world-class sensory experts when it comes to beer, but I still want to see brewers come along and understand how to describe flavor and, and what their beers go with. Winemakers do know how to do that. Winemakers are in that arena day in and day out. So I think I correct myself where, you know, the past is the past. Damn you big brewers and those terrible ads, you know, um, and all that. But also maybe today we're not doing such a great job even in the trenches is because we don't own the arena of, of the food pairing world with beer. And I think that's something that brewers can, can stand to shore up and, and have the capability and the tools to do that. That is a fantastic point. You know, I think about it. I, when I was in college, I went to a liberal arts college, but I cross-enrolled for a semester my sophomore year in a graphic design course at the Memphis College of Art um, because the uh, Rhodes College and Memphis College of Art allowed for cross-enrollment, and I wanted to study some graphic design. And, of course, graphic design is still a big part of my own personal creative practice. But I, what I found in taking that class was that I was far from the most skilled graphic designer there, and I was the worst illustrator in that class. I was, I was terrible compared to every other student when it came to illustration. And yet, I would guess that 50% of the conversation that the professor had with the class involved me in some way because I could talk. And so even though I was far from the most skilled at actually doing the thing, the fact that I had a linguistic capability and was able to interact with the professor on that language level changed my own level of interaction with that. And I think, you know, that's an interesting one when you talk about it with, with brewers today that um, some of the folks that have the most finely tuned sense of palate that know exactly how to make something better, know exactly what ingredient is doing what to make it taste the way that it does, know exactly what technique has influenced that specific thing that has pushed it in this kind of direction that can sit and smell and rub hops at a hop selection and pick out the most obscure and minute differences in those often have a hard time connecting that to a language that meaningfully described it. It's a reason why I often talk on the podcast here about brewers with teams and how they develop their own language, because I think that it's an important subject in that sense, being able to communicate as a brewer with other people on your brewing team, what it is you're actually tasting and finding the language and finding a detailed and nuanced enough language so that everyone understands that that's not that's just not the the reflexive skill that uh, you know the brewers can back in on. It's not something that comes naturally. It's just you know, it's it's not instinct. Um, it's a learned behavior. Yeah, but language brings us in, right? Language resonates. So I think that is the name of the game: is is getting to a place where whatever copy you write about that that beverage also includes just the name of two or three pairings: one a protein, maybe one a side dish, one a dessert. And then remember that all your customers are on that spectrum. And so then you can geek out and go further and then do a paragraph on why it works with your chosen pairings. Don't assume, though, that that introductory language is, um, uh, you know, needing to be too verbose. Just bring people in. And then the ones that come in and, you you know, you open the door for them and want to stay a while, then, then help me geek out. Then help me get poetic. Um, but you want to start somewhere. You don't want to just avoid the topic. That, that to me, I think is a missed opportunity in beer. For brewers that are trying to develop that language and work on that, what, where, what's the best place to start? What are some of the resources that you think might be important for them? Or, and are there exercises um, that people can engage in in order to, you know, I mean, we're training a muscle here, right? You know, what are those exercises that brewers can do to improve that skill set? A, I think the biggest is getting a sense of how you perceive flavor, where your blind spots are, right? Getting that tri flavor triangle down, reading any book that's out there, um, uh, and, and, and getting that a part of your, your normal training. Sensory is super key. Um, people are doing a checks and balance to the instruments that can, you know, perceive uh, vicinal diktones and, and diacetyl and whatnot, but really people need to do sensory. And, and if you're putting a sentry lab in place, you have the, the, the testing with your team day in and day out. 
So part of that could start to be, okay, it's not just testing the quality and the sensory aspects of this beer. Let's take it further and start to talk about where does this beer really own, you know, a dish? Where does this beer school any other brand and, and style or version of that style on the market? What does it fall into place with? And I think that's a that's a great place to start. And I mean, Mirella, one of my dear friends, I was in the trenches with her studying for Master Cicerone. She passed, I didn't. Um, she just came out with an amazing um, food uh, training course, beer and I food training that, sure. course, right? Um, mine and Gwen Conley's beer food, food pairing book is everything I would want brewers to know. Um, I think that it's about reading and acting like it's a part of the learnings that you have to do. Uh, and and adding it to the to the curriculum of studies and 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 talk that you do with your team um, and your brewers every day. As you're thinking about it from a, a home brewer or a brewer's standpoint, as you are designing beers, are there some parameters that you find in recipe design? And you know, I don't I don't think we need to. You know, there's a whole spectrum of different beers that pair very well with food. Um, you know, but are there some general parameters that you find? help some beers pair better than others? Well, quality beer helps. You don't want something <laughs> too bitter, too sweet, Are too tannic. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's, it's a good question to ask me because I'm going to give you a bumbled answer where, you know, if you were to ask me how I discover my recipes, I tend to have recipes that mean something to somebody else. And then I go run with it. And then if I brew it again, I start to tweak it. But so that first recipe has nothing to do with what the beer is going to pair with. It really is. I mean, let's get back to the end of where we're, or where sure. we all start, not the end. It's about the beer first. And then secondarily, what food do you feel it goes with? Um, I remember doing a um, test tasting for the Great American Beer Festival media luncheon. We were at the hotel. I brought down my arsenal cooler of many beers. The hotel was there to, you know, let their chef flex their muscle and us to decide what the menu was. But the menu wasn't going to work for me if I couldn't find an exact beer that I wanted to pair with every dish. And I remember we had this like s'mores dish at the end, marshmallows, melted chocolate, graham cracker, you know, mouse already watering, thinking about it on a snowy day like this around the campfire. Um, and nothing in my cooler was working. And then I finally pulled out Avery Hog Heaven and, you know, the clouds parted and, and, and you know, the birds were singing. Um, and the, uh, that, the aspect of that barley wine, the intensity was there, right? Intensity is half the battle in pairing. Um, the alcohol level is able to stand up to the rich nature um, of what was going on, the heavy nature of the chocolate and the marshmallow. And the marshmallow had been charred a little bit. So then it fell into that barley wine and almost brought the barley wine to almost like a Roush barley wine. And they just ripped off each other. And that's, that was that was a fun day and a, and a great example of where start with the beer or start with the food. If you start with the food, you can that's easier to tweak or you're going to have to change out the whole beer. But when you do your test tasting, and that's, I mean, the centerfold, you want to talk about serious, geeky, sexy, but not so sexy to many, but some of you will get it. Like the centerfold of mine and Gwen Conley's beer pairing book is basically the, the seven, you know, basic steps to, to a proper pairing. And one of the key things is, is a test tasting. You have to test and then you tweak, right? Something's too salty, lessen the salt. Something needs to brighten the acidity, sprinkle some lemon juice on it, right? Um, uh, you're not getting the right pairing, put in a Goza instead of a Berliner Weiss, right? Like there's all sorts of nuance that you can find in beers that are styled similarly, but not exactly the taste. And then finally, all of a sudden, the, the, the clouds part and the birds sing. What are some of your favorite pairings? Um, I talk about this a lot too. Uh, on the cover of Beer Pairing Book is a pimped out crazy um, hamburger. And in the American, you know, mindset, a cheeseburger is one of the staples, right? Sure. And if you're not going to own that and do it right, um, then A, don't eat the burger. Uh, but we put a lot of blue cheese on it. We put some purple onion on it. It's not just a picture on the cover of the book. There's a whole section in the book about that pairing. And it's with an American IPA. And so I think the American IPA, which has classic um, aspects of American hops, those hops have tendencies on the American side of things to either go into the tropics, like, you know, guava, passion fruit, clementine, grapefruit, or to the forest, juniper, spruce, pine, depending on the American hop. And so those hops really, if you have the uh, forest types of hops, fall into the blue cheese on that um, burger sure, like sure. nobody's business. It's big enough of a beer to cut through the fatty, rich nature of the you know grilled beef or bison if you're in Colorado. Um, 
they, you know, I could go on and on about that, but I'll riff on a few other favorites. Sure. Uh, lentil soup, believe it or not, and um, uh, Flanders Red is an incredible pairing. <laughs> Try it. Trust me. Um, there's this uh, kind of root nature aspect of the stock of lentil soup, um, essence of carrots, right? Um, brown malt flavors, almost you can envision the the beer being part of the um, the stock of that soup. Um, the acidic acetobacter nature of a, of a Flanders Red are really going to brighten up and um, you know cut through some of the the salty nature and the rich umami nature of that lentil soup, and the the stock shines even brighter. Um, and the beer comes off a little less acidic and you actually taste the malt, the brown malt flavors in that Flanders, which nobody talks about the malts used in Flanders. Sure, sure. Because it's usually maybe, you know, Munich, Vienna with the base malt of Pilsner and maybe some caramalts. And so you've got malt flavors to really talk about. And when you pair it with a lentil soup, you actually get to the malt flavors in a Flanders red. So those are two fun examples. How it's, about you? It's so How funny. About you? Well, we've, uh, we are putting the finishing touches actually this week on our, our next issue where we cover uh, wheat beers, spelt uh, oat beer, and then uh, also barley wines. And, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, the malt component of Flanders red, because there's also this current uh, trend within the world of strong ales and barley wines where, you know, building historical stock ales, that involve Brett, um, yeah, takes those in a different direction. And we tasted a whole bunch uh, recently that have a very Flandersy kind of thing. You know, we we tend to think of Flanders Red and barley wine as different beers, but they're not that different. You know, like there's there's a little difference in acidity. Um, you know, but especially when you get into the breadier, you know, stock ales and old ales, like, you know, and it's the same kind of thing when you look at, you know, a grist bill for something like Saison versus Pilsner, they're not that different. Right. Or I'll put Baltic Porter and Bach beer on the table if you remove some of the roasted malts from that Baltic Porter. Right. Yeah. There's some remarkably close things here and we tend to think of them as different. We put them in these kind of taxonomic buckets that are separate and apart from each other when the continuity of these things um, you know, they're much more connected than I think that, uh, you know, we often uh, realize or admit to. And so, you know, it's fun that way. I, personally, when it comes to pairing, I've spent a lot of time focusing on cheese. Uh, it's uh, another side passion of mine. God, uh, yes. God, yes. And, and I, uh, you know, I've, I've gone off uh, the cheese deep end. And so, you know, I love something like, uh, you know, pairing blue cheese with anything from IPA because that pulls out some of those, you know, you know, more piquant kind of notes, but also stouts, you know, that's such a fun interest, especially an imperial stout that can hold up to the kind of strong, you know, funk of blue cheese, you know, finding those flavors and finding those things you don't expect to work um, and finding them and how they work, watching that roastiness play against the creaminess of the cheese. I mean, it's, it's fun to yeah. see how that works. I know. We could keep going. Um, seared scallops uh, with hot mustard sauce and a Saison. Um, also staying on Saison, I had, uh, when I was displaced from the flood, even in our apartment that had no furniture, and I was slicing a tomato from our from our garden here in Lyons in the Longmont apartment, sprinkled a little salt on there, and drank a Golden Monday Monkey from Victory, more of a triple. Sure. Um, wow. I, and I, I, I wish I had it in front of me so I could dive into exactly why the interactions were working. Um, but those are the simple, beautiful pleasures of, you know, the majority of time, we're not just drinking beer, we are eating it with food. So why not connect the dots? So now that you're back in this leadership role for the AHA, what's next on your brew list? Mm -hmm. I love it. And thanks for bringing it back to home brewing. It's why we get to sit here. Um, I, my first batch out of the gates was, uh, brave noise to acknowledge what's going on in craft beer. Sure. Uh, certainly having been a, a woman who's witness to it and made a career, um, pretending a lot of it wasn't happening. I have to own that now and can do better in the future. Second bat. And I brewed that with American Homebrew Association staff at my house, which was cool. Um, second batch was a cherry chica stout, which is a award winner, um, from Hop Barley and the Ailers Beer Judge Certification um, Competition many years ago. So I resurrected that recipe. I love that. That's in bottles now. I'll have to see how it ferments. That's what I handed you, by the way. Before oh, okay. You go home. That's the yes. one. It's not labeled, so I figured I'd better tell you. Sure, sure. Give it, give it two weeks. It's got to carbonate. I okay. just bottled it last weekend. Um, and then to honor um, the history of homebrewing, and I, I certainly will be focused on the future, but Charlie Papazian. Um, he lives 20 minutes behind my left shoulder 
Uh, we had beers at Fritz Family Brewery two days ago. Uh, he, out of the gates, as soon as I knew I got the job, I was talking to him and Gary Glass, who was the, who were the two kind of former, um, sure. more prolific uh, leaders of AHA. Um, many others contributed for sure. Uh, but I said to Charlie, like, man, I got to, what, what, I want to brew a beer of yours. And I had a Creekside, uh, one of his Hellases. It's a, it's a hoppy Hellas, kind of in, in Italian Pilsner style influenced Hellas almost. So he, that recipe has been published in Zymergy. I will be brewing that and that's all grain. So I've been dabbling in trying to make sure <laughs> I remember how to do everything. Sure, sure. Um, so now I'm finally getting up to this brew um, that will be with my 12 gallon stainless system, c- Cajun cookers on the, on the patio, but good thing I didn't try it today in the snowy atmosphere. You know, it's winter. Yeah, so yeah. I've been kind of putting it off. And Charles you like, got when, some good burners. Well, yeah, I do. And Charles like, when are you brewing that beer? You got the recipe in like late December. I'm like, I know, but it's been cold. Like I got to <laughs> wait. So I've got the grains ready. Got the um, yeast going. He's going to give me the hops and I just need to pick a day. Nice. Yeah. So nice. a nice Hellas. What are, uh, what are your top priorities, you know, over this next year you know, with the American Homebrewers Association? What, uh, what do you hope to achieve in the short term? And, uh, you know, also at the same time, what are you looking to push towards with this longer, bigger picture goal? You know, the nice thing about operating within an organization uh, is that you can also set longer term goals and work towards those. It's not just a how we're going to make our numbers for the next quarter. Certainly there's that concern of being able to sustain the organization and, and keep things moving in the right direction. But, you know, you also get to think and ponder bigger questions and how you move towards those. Um, what are, what are those short term and, and then long term priorities? I love that opportunity. And really thanks for bringing it back to homebrewing. Cause it is something that I think can truly enrich anyone that's interested in, in doing this wonderful hobby in terms of the American homebrewers association. I'm going to spend um, a lot of time and I am listening and already working with an amazing plan. That's already in place, a world-class team that is ready to serve membership and is actively doing that. Um, a national conference that we're going to execute, HomebrewCon and National Homebrew Competition, June it's 20th. back this year? Back in person. In person, in okay. person June 23rd to 25th in Pittsburgh. Um, we're going to successfully execute that and, and take it in 2023 and off and running, although it's a, it's a different model. Um, we lost the ability confidently to do first round competitions for, you know, in 10 plus regions of the country with COVID in the mix. So we've right. collapsed in the judging. Um I want to get at learning where we can help homebrewers reach their goals. And it's not just what we already do so well, the how to brew, but I want to get at also more the why we brew and helping homebrewers help each other. That is a major priority to me. Tied into that is DEI. Um, Equity is a big thing. I come at the place of equity. Like, I feel like I probably look like a little kid to you across the table right now with my little ball cap on. <laughs> and my, like, I'm so little that, that Jamie hands me this headset to do this interview that you're listening to, and the headphones won't sit on my head. So we had to figure something out to like stuff under the headphones so the damn things won't fall off while we're talking. I'm like 100 pounds in a wet towel. That is neither here nor there in my potential for influence and um, contribution to home brewing to advance it. Um, but I really want to get at, you know, the DEI aspect because I do think the DEI that, is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. And thank you. Acronyms are, are not helpful to many and including me. So I shouldn't slip in there. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a big opportunity for beer and it's not just going on with the fresh, refreshing reckoning since, um, rat magnet and Brianne Allen has come on the scene in May of 2020, um, which affected many women and many people of you know, diverse walks of life and underrepresented populations in a very significant way. But it also comes to the aspect of homebrewing. I've been at the judge table where, you know, people were looking at me like, great, you're here to service our beers. And I'm like, no, I've been in the industry for how long? I love stewarding. I did my time, but I'm here to judge. Um, The way, you know, women get looked at is often different. Um, And so I want to get at not just the gender piece, but bringing all walks of life to homebrewing, giving people even more reasons to identify with the hobby, um, getting and creating a more diverse homebrewersassociation.org contribution level from the author side and the story side, Um, getting at that in Zymergy Magazine, getting at that for the speakers of homebrew competition, getting at that who rolls up their sleeves to enter national homebrew um, or yeah, getting at national homebrew competition and who enters it, and then also who speaks at HomebrewCon, and then who enters Pro-Am at the Great American Beer Festival. These are all programs that the American Homebrewers Association brings forth to give us homebrewers a reason to brew. 
And if you love the hobby, sometimes you need that, you know, uh, race on the calendar. If you're a runner, great. I'm training for that race. Sure. That's what national organizations do. They give us a reason to rally and galvanize together. We've got big brew coming up in early May. We've got learn to homebrew in November. We've got mead day in August. So everything I just mentioned is in my yearly plan. I'm here to learn from it, take from what's already in place, not change a lot, but 2023 look out because I'm going to try to put my fingerprints on it and influence what I've seen that we're missing and, and have learned from in 2022 to, to bring more walks of life into brewing and to help homebrewers better meet their goals in a way that the AHA has, has barely even scratched the surface on. That's exciting. And uh, I'm excited that uh, we all get to work on these projects together in various ways, collaboratively in that spirit of craft beer um, and helping to tell this broader story to the entire world about how fantastic rewarding, fulfilling brewing can be for everybody from all walks of life, all backgrounds, and in all kinds of situations and scenarios in their world. Julia, it's been really, really fun to talk to you about this. It's been great. You are, this. if y'all listening and you, you listen to a show, so knowledgeable, so um, approachable, and um, just just a true treat. I thank you for your your time and the opportunity to chat and, and hear, you know, have you direct our conversation, but hear some of your thoughts too. Now you're embarrassing me. Now <laughs> you're embarrassing me. Gene's microchannel condensers use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers. Get back to the future with Vireman Iceria 1924. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends. Get detailed insight into your fermentations with Brew Monitor risk-free put ss brutex advances to work in your brew house and that pb powder you've known and trusted is now available in tablet form from five star chemicals if you enjoyed the podcast of course we would love your support go to beerandbrewing.com click on the subscribe button of course many of the guests we talked to here share additional insights through our magazine video and other platforms and we would certainly love your support on that um tomorrow People will get this, and the, the day after this podcast goes live, I'm hopping on a plane and heading over to Belgium. Awesome. I've been doing my best, best to stay, uh, keep COVID out of my sphere so I can pass that PCR test. Um, but Joe Stang and I are meeting up in Brussels, and we're going to have, and it's going to be a beautiful week of recording podcast episodes. So all of you out there in the world, um, tune in next week because we've got a real treat. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to sprinkle in those episodes recorded in Belgium to uh, bring in a whole new spectrum and different perspective on brewing. Cannot wait to do that. Cannot wait to bring those conversations to you all. Um, Julia, if you want to learn more about the AHA, you in person in, in particular, are there places where they can find you and the AHA? Sure. I mean, homebrewersassociation.org is the main website. You can follow me on at hers muses. Stay tuned for a unannounced, not saying yet what it is, podcast following the great footsteps of many um, that will be uh, on many great things that I think will be helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, you can always email me, Julia at brewersassociation.org. It would be fantastic to have your voice added to that broader conversation in your own voice and in your own words. Um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Super fun. On a snowy night, we're going to golf cart back to my house, too. I can't wait. It's going to be an adventure. <laughs> Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.